1 Samuel 18. 1 Samuel 18. First Samuel chapter 18, and our whole focus uh, of First Samuel, uh, the book, uh, the theme of it is lessons from the heart. And so we've been learning various lessons from hearts that are in a good spot, hearts that are in a bad spot. And uh, right now, unfortunately, we're focusing a lot on Saul, where his heart's in a, in a bad spot. So, but in chapter 17, we saw that while David served as Saul's administrative assistant at the palace, uh, when the Philistines invaded Israel, Saul deemed him a liability on the battlefield and sent him home. But we know how that worked out, right? Eventually, David comes to the battlefield, sees what Goliath's doing, challenges Goliath, defeats Goliath, and Israel's victorious. And so by killing Goliath and becoming the catalyst for Israel's victory over the Philistines, David has set himself up now as a permanent fixture in Saul's entourage. But David's good standing with Saul begins to stir up Saul's weakness. Because remember, what is Saul trying to do? What's his chief aim? It's to maintain his kingdom no matter what. Even when the Lord says something, he still wants to make, that is his number one goal, is to maintain his kingdom at all costs. And thus, as David prospers, Saul develops a jealous heart, treating David wickedly, even to the point of attempted murder. So chapter 18, verse 1, we're going to study Saul's jealous heart tonight. So then it came to pass when he, uh, that Saul, uh, David, had made an end of speaking unto Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and, and would let him go no more home to his father's house. Well, then David, Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David, and his garments even to his sword and to his bow and to his girdle. And David went out with us whoever Saul sent him and behaved himself wisely. And so Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants." We see here that David begins to become elevated in his position in the nation, uh, you know, just very quickly. Uh, it mentions here that, remember, at the end of the battle, uh, that Saul told Abner, his, his general, he said, who is this guy? I mean, I know who he is, but where, what's, his, what's his family history? Where did he get learned to do this? And Abner goes, I don't know. And so they call him in, they question David, and David just says, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just David. They're like, my family is my family. We're nobody special. And Saul is just baffled by this. So David remains humble in the midst of this incredible elevation. And so when that conversation is over, it mentions that someone else overheard all this stuff. Someone else was watching. It says that when their conversation was over, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. The word there, knit, it, it speaks of being kindred spirits. It speaks of being united with somebody. And, and when it mentions here that Jonathan loved him, loved David as his own soul, uh, people like to get weird with that. Uh, but however, this is the same word that is used for Saul's affection for David in 1 Samuel 16, 21. It's the same exact word. It, it describes affection, brotherly love. There is nothing romantic about this word at all. The very notion that Jonathan and David had a homosexual or romantic relationship is absurd. Jonathan's connection here with David, that they have this kindred spirit, they have this brotherly love with, for one another, 
It's directly tied here to David's conversation with Saul after Israel defeats the Philistines. Jonathan could relate to David's courage and faith because he'd done that himself when his dad was brooding and didn't do anything against the Philistines. You know, he, he could relate to that. But I think David's simplicity and humility before his father, before, as Jonathan's watching David answer the king, I think that was the final piece. I think that Jonathan said, this guy's just like me. He just wants to follow the Lord. He, he just wants to keep it simple. And, and he, just, he just wants to do the right thing. And you know, some friendships, they are forged in the fire. You are nothing alike with them. You bump heads a lot at first, but through perseverance and genuine love, mutual respect and affection is born and you become close friends, right? All, many of us probably have a friendship like that, you know, uh, um, um, you know where you, it's not easy at first, okay? Marriage can be like that sometimes. <laughs> you're like, they're wonderful, they're wonderful. And then you start living together and you're like, oh my gosh, they drive me nuts. And, and you bump heads and, and be through, you know, um, you know, hard work and perseverance and genuine love, a real true friendship is born. However, some friendships also just kind of click. It's easy. You just kind of, bam, you hit it off. You're headed in exactly the same direction with exactly the same mindset. And that's what Jonathan and David's friendship was like. There's no butting of heads. We never see them at odds because neither of them has an ego. Neither of them has an agenda. They both want the same thing. And so they just click. And so, you know, I'd ask you tonight, you know, if you're struggling finding close friendships or even if you struggle in your marriage relationship, I would encourage you to check yourself first because the questions you need to ask yourself are, are this, does, does my ego get in the way? You know, does my selfishness get in the way? You know, do, do I try to manipulate, you know, my friends or my, my spouse to get what I want from them? You know, do I persevere through differences and challenges? And, and do I have genuine love for others? So, because most of the times it's, it's not necessarily like Jonathan and David. And yet God still wants us to have meaningful friendships. Well, verse 2 it says that Saul takes David for himself at this point. Saul took him that day. It's that same word to, to seize. David gets seized again. He just keeps getting seized all over the place. And, uh, and, and yet he never complains. And, uh, and this time Saul decides to make him a permanent fixture in his service. He would not let him go no more home to his father's house. Um, you know, David had a specific role in the court um, as Saul's assistant, but at this time, Saul says, no, I, I want you to fill a greater role, a greater capacity. I don't want you going back home anymore. You know, David will have many failures throughout his life. Probably, to be honest, if we're being honest with ourselves, he probably has more failures than Saul does. But there are so many areas where David is a shining example. You know, Saul constantly pulls and pushes David but all throughout their relationship, David never demands his rights. Never. He is a faithful subject to Saul, and he is a faithful friend to Saul through it all. Well, verse 3, it says, Then Jonathan and David, they made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. That shows us that the, the language makes it clear that while this is an agreement between Jonathan and David, it is instigated by Jonathan. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David and his garments, even to his sword and to his bow and to his girdle. Um, 
It was very common in ancient times for soldiers who became friends to exchange armor. And, and the word there, garments, actually means his coat of armor. So this is a common ritual that, that takes place when soldiers become close. Um, the problem here is that David's just a shepherd. He doesn't have any armor. He doesn't have a weapon. I mean, he's got a staff, shepherd's staff. He's got four extra stones since it only took one to kill, you know, Goliath. But he doesn't have any of this stuff to give. And, and so he has no tools of war to give to Jonathan in the exchange. So the only one who's listed given anything in the exchange is Jonathan. The only thing David can bring to the exchange is himself. And, you know, I think that's an awesome picture of what Jesus does for us because, you know, Jesus' covenant with us is like Jonathan's with David. Jesus gives us everything because we have nothing to bring to the exchange except ourselves, right? Nothing. It's not like I can give something to Jesus and Jesus is going, oh, that's awesome. That makes me better. I can't bring anything to the exchange. It's all his grace. I bring myself. And the beautiful part is, just like Jonathan and David, that was enough for Jonathan. He said, that's all I'm asking for. I want your friendship. In the same way, the Lord is so glad to be in a friendship with us, to be in that relationship with us. Well, verse 5 David's a soldier now. He's not just an administrative assistant. And so David went out whithersoever Saul sent him. And he behaved himself wisely. The, the phrase behaved himself wisely is actually one word in the Hebrew. Uh, but the word combines both wisdom and success, which is why they translate it this way. Remember, David's not a soldier, and therefore he had a lot to learn as an important member of Saul's army. Uh, but it's, what it's saying here is that wherever Saul sent him, he, he was... He combined wisdom with success. It means that he learned fast and he was successful on the battlefield and all the missions that he was sent on. And so as a result, Saul sets him over the men of war. And this promotion that David gets, he is accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now, this reward of, of, with a promotion that Saul gives to him, it is I don't know about you, but you know, I was never one to be excited when someone who was newer than I was got a promotion quicker than I did. It is very rare for people to be happy when someone is promoted so quickly over them. It's rarer for politicians to be happy about it. But these folks genuinely like David. David inspired everyone. He had become a hero. He was an inspiration to the Israeli army. And now they saw he wasn't just a, a one-hit wonder, you know, that this guy was the real deal. He's someone you could follow. He's someone you could trust, which leads people to sing his praises. Verse 6, and it came to pass that as they came, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tabrets and with joy and with instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very wroth, and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more but the kingdom? And so it says, so I, David, from that day and forward. Now, this idea is the, com the campaign. David slays Goliath. You know, he, he kind of comes back into the camp with Goliath's head and his sword and all this stuff. And, 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 you know, and immediately he's seized, brought before King Saul, and he's you know, grilled with questions. After that's over, him and Jonathan just, they, they talk, they hit it off, they make this covenant, and then David is sent right back out into the campaign. 
So after this campaign that starts with the killing of the Philistine is over, we know where it headed if you read the end of chapter 17 because it talks about how the battle went here and here and here. When all that's over, the army now returns from this extended campaign back home and there's a massive celebration waiting for them. Now note, who is the celebration for? It says, the women came out to meet King Saul. Verse 6 says, they came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul, with all these instruments and, and whatnot, and with great joy. Saul has the highest honor in this celebration. All the attention is focused on him as king. The victory is ascribed to him as their leader. But even though all of that's true, News of David's deeds have spread all over the nation, which prompts the women to sing something special that includes him as well, which is, Saul has slain his thousands, but David is ten thousands. No, it doesn't say, but David is ten thousands. It says, and David is ten thousands. That's an important difference, because what Saul heard was, Saul has slain his thousands, but David slayed ten thousands. That's what he heard, but that's not what they sang. Never in this place, never in this celebration is David given a place over Saul. There is zero ill intent in this song. All the honor is going to Saul, but what they are praising is how Saul and David have accomplished more together than what Saul did alone, and that is not an insult. That's not a slight. You know, my very first pastor shared a story with me one, one day. I was young, and I I would spend a lot of time with him. He discipled me, and he invested a lot into me. And I remember he told me a story when he first graduated from, from Bible college, and he, he got a job. He was, it was a denominational school, and so they placed him in a, one of their churches. And he was the music director and the, the youth leader. And the, the senior pastor had, I don't know if he was on a mission trip, or he had to go away for a bit anyway, and so he asked him to fill in for him for the congregational teaching. So he did for a month. And in that month, offerings went up, attendance went up, things were, you know, things were looking better in that sense. And so he was all excited. He thought, oh, praise the Lord what God's doing, you know, this is awesome. God's, you know, he's just using me to be a help to, to him and, and to bless the rest of the church. And the pastor called him in when he returned, and he said, there's only one solution when one guy's teaching and more people are coming and the offerings go up, and it means one of us has to go. He fired him. He fired him. Let's forget that story for now. I am so glad that there are so many different facets of our church that do well. And one of the things that makes me most happy is when I'm not a part of the things that are going well. And do you want to know why? Because it means what's going well is the Lord and doesn't have anything to do with just me. I find that to be comforting. When I see God doing something really awesome and I'm not involved in that, I find that to be comforting because then I go, look what God's doing. I... I I am not the best leader by any stretch of the means. There are other guys out there who are better leaders, better pastors that I look up to. But I am so glad that I get to be a part of what God's doing. And I don't ever want to get like this. I don't ever want to have that thought process that, 
well, I'm not a part of this, and it's doing really well, and huh, must be nice. Because while I've never been that way in my life in the church I was serving in, I've been that way in other aspects in my life. You know, you know, when, when you know, you're at work and someone else is just, you know, they're doing awesome, and every time you show up, it's like, you know, swimming through mud. You know, it's just you know, slow going and not a lot of results. I don't want to be like that in any area of my life. There's no slight towards Saul here. This is people being excited about something awesome that's happened. Because for decades, Israel has lived in fear of the Philistines, and now there appears to be a very real light at the end of the tunnel. And the sad part is, Saul doesn't see any of that. He sees it a different way. And so it says in verse 8 that Saul was very wroth. The phraser means his temper reached a tipping point. It means he didn't have an outburst, but he was right at the point where he was going to have an outburst. He was livid. He was at the point where it was everything in him to not just blow up. And that it tells us why. For the saying displeased him. The word there means it was evil in his eye. He thought it was a morally wrong thing. They had slighted him. They had done wrong by singing this and by saying this. This is a bad turn for the nation, not a good one. It is not good that people are excited like this. This is bad. And he explains why. Because they have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed but thousands. And so what more can he have but the kingdom? Now, if we're being honest, Saul's words and this experience show us way more about Saul's heart than it is about the people's heart. I imagine if you went out to the people there and they said, hey, uh, are, are you thinking like that David's better than Saul? I imagine most of these ladies would be like, what are you talking about? Why would you say that? I don't think anybody was thinking that, except Saul, which is why it shows us a lot more about what's going on in here than it does in anybody else's heart at this whole celebration. All these people have a great amount of respect for King Saul. They're here to celebrate his victory as the king, but he can't see that because he thinks everyone else thinks like him. A word of advice. Just because you're thinking it doesn't mean anyone else is. Just because you're thinking it doesn't mean anyone else is. And be very wary of projecting your pride or your selfishness or even your offense that you take up for someone else. Be very wary of projecting that onto others. Because when you do, it simply justifies more sinful behavior on your part instead of allowing God to deal with the ugliness that's in your heart. Because look at what happens with Saul. From this moment forward, it says that Saul eyed David. The word there, eyed, is actually two Hebrew words. It means to see everything through a wicked or twisted lens. Everything that he saw David do now, he saw it through a wicked, twisted lens. So nothing that David did was taken at the face value of what he actually did, you know? You know, it would be like if my wife, you know, she's, she's, you know, she's the cook in the family. You know, um, I do something. What do I do? She cooks. I think I eat. So it'd be like her putting a meal in front of me, you know, and, 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 
and you know, she works hard at this, and here, honey, you know, and, and I, I say something like, what does that mean? What does that mean, you know? Here, honey. You know? You know? Why not, how's it going? Or why not, why not, why not here, your excellence? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, she already does that. No, but the, everything, everything becomes now through, through this lens. And, and even just everyday things become more than that, more than they are. Whenever David came around, Saul only saw evil plots to overthrow or bad motives. And it is impossible, impossible to have any kind of meaningful relationship when that's the case, whether it's your, your marriage, a friendship, a work relationship. It is impossible to have any kind of meaningful relationship when that's what's in your heart, when that's how you see another person. And, and can I just say, this is one of the most dangerous attitudes to have if you are a leader or you aspire to be a leader. This is probably one of, like if on the list of things that, like for example, if someone is, is telling me, hey, I have a heart to serve, a heart to lead, or I feel a call to ministry, this is one of the things that I immediately look for. I want to know, is there this type of, of selfish ambition? Is there this type of, uh, of sensitivity to others and, and, and how they're succeeding around them? You know? you know, for example, selfish ambition ask the question, why am I never picked for this? Why am I never picked for this? And, and it sees those who serve with them, not as comrades, but as those who hold them back. If you have any aspirations to, to be a leader of any kind, purge yourself of selfish ambition. Prosperity never comes from people. It comes from the Lord. That's what we read in Psalm 75. It comes from the Lord. And so anytime you are thinking, oh, they're trying to hold me back, what you are really saying is God isn't giving me what I deserve. Anytime you think that, they're holding me back, what you are actually saying is God isn't giving me what I deserve because prosperity doesn't come from those people, you know? I have had people at times say, I remember I had a conversation with a gentleman very early on in the ministry. This is 20 plus years ago, you know, and, and he said to me, he's like, he's like, you know, why are you always holding me back? Why won't you let me do this? Or why won't you let me do that? Why won't you let me do this? And, and I remember I had to answer him. I said, because that's what you're telling me. <laughs> your answer tells you why. You already have your answer. Because what you're saying is not I'm holding you back because I don't have the ability to hold you back. You think I'm that important? You, you think I have that much power? You think that God's really going, wow, I'd really like to promote this guy, but Will's a jerk. <laughs> no. What you're really saying is, God isn't giving me what I deserve because who can hold back the Lord? David has zero ill motives towards Saul, zero ill thoughts towards Saul. And the Lord would promote David when the Lord wanted to. And David was fine with that. He was perfectly fine with that. So even though David is anointed to be Saul's replacement, David never, never attempts to take the kingdom from Saul, even, even when Saul's trying to kill him. 
now. In contrast to David's humble attitude and selfless, has no ambition, Saul refused to step down when God told him he was done. He stubbornly holds on to the kingdom for years after God rejected him. And thus the people that Saul was supposed to serve, the man, David, who is one of the most loyal people to Saul, these people begin to become suspects in a plot that never existed. A jealous and an envious heart sees evil in others and justifies its own behavior. It is the opposite of love, for it's the fruit of selfishness. And that's why 1 Corinthians 13 says, love does not envy. It's not jealous, because it can't be. Jealousy is selfish. And jealousy, when it is allowed to persist, it leads to destructive words and to evil behavior. Look at verse 10. And it came to pass on the morrow, so this is just one day later. This is one day after the big, huge celebration. came to pass on the morrow that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul, and he prophesied in the midst of the house. And David played with his hand, as at other times, and there was a javelin in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the javelin, for he said, I will smite David even to the wall with it. And David avoided out of his presence twice. And Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and was departed from Saul. Saul attempts to murder one of the men who's most loyal to him here in these verses. It says, it came to pass on the morrow in verse 10. Notice that jealousy begins to rot the heart immediately. There was no delay. It wasn't like, you know, a couple days that, you know, before it kicked in. And that is why you can never allow jealous thoughts to go unchallenged. You cannot you have to nip it in the bud. The minute you start thinking it, the minute those feelings start to come in, you've got to nip it in the bud. You've got to deal with it. You've got to take that thought captive, put it in jail, and you've got to renew your mind with the truth. Because as Saul is having the normal experience he has, because he's not walking with the Lord, this evil spirit that we've already seen, it mentions here that he begins to prophesy in the midst of the house. Now, the word for prophesy here, it means to speak under the influence of an outside source. Now, that's fine if the outside source is the Lord, right? You know, hopefully tonight there is an, I'm, hopefully I'm not just here doing my thing. Hopefully there is an outside source helping me to say what I'm saying in a way that you find some benefit, you know, that the Lord is ministering to you. Uh, otherwise, we're wasting a lot of time. So that's a good thing. While that is good, it is awful when the source is the enemy. It's an awful thing. Saul begins to rant and rave, speaking all these irrational things, and, and his staff, his servants, recognizing that it was the demon returned to torment him, they do what they normally do. They say, David, we need you to come play some music. Got to calm the guy down. He's going crazy again. And so David comes in, as was his normal habit. But this time, Saul's doing his rant and raven, and he's got a, a spear in his hand, a javelin. And while Saul is under the influence of a demonic force here, he's not completely out of control. And thus, Saul sees an opportunity. He says, I could kill David here, and everyone will just blame the demon. And so in verse 11, Saul casts the javelin, for he said, this is how we know he was in control, for he said, I will smite David even to the wall with it. Now, 
that doesn't mean he's going to throw the javelin and it's going to hit David and stick to the wall behind him. Um, the, the nature of the word here, to cast, it, it means to, to, to swipe or stab, but it's in such a, a vicious way, um, and that's why it conveys his thoughts that he's hoping to basically puncture him so, so severely, so, so um, violently that he'll pit him to the wall, you know? And so he, he tries to do this. He tries to stab David twice. It says that David ducks out of the way. And at that point, David's like, all right, I I'm, I'm, think I'm done for the night. And so David avoids these two monstrous stabs. And, and, and like I said, that's enough for to convince him to leave. And so now where does that leave Saul with this failed murder attempt? Not any better. Verse 12, and now Saul adds to his jealousy fear. Now Saul is afraid of David. Why? Because the Lord was with David and had departed from him. The unsuccessful jealous attempt now adds another problem to Saul's heart, fear. Because what Saul's thinking, if David wasn't plotting against me before, I've just given him a really good reason to do so now. I tried to kill him. And even David's relationship with the Lord became a negative because Saul's thinking, surely God would pick someone like David to replace me. And that is the sad condition when you have a jealous heart. While you refuse to deal with your own sin, you just spiral farther and farther down into self-absorption. Your thoughts become consumed with all the hurtful and evil things that others could do to you instead of addressing the hurtful things and evil things you've already done to others. There is no mention here of remorse on Saul's part where he goes, I just tried to kill a man. I need to go apologize to David. No, he is fearful. He's thinking, this has put me in a worse spot. There's no remorse for his attempt at murder. There's no awareness of his wrong assumptions about David. And there's certainly no repentance for his rebellion against the Lord. And thus what we're going to see in Saul's life is he's going to follow one sinful action after another for the rest of his relationship with David. It will just be one attempt after another to do wrong to David. And so Saul being fearful, verse 13, he sends David away. Therefore Saul removed him from him. He says, I need to get him out of my presence. I'm in danger if he's nearby. And he made him captain over a thousand. And so he went out and came in. David went out and came in before the people. You know, here we have another promotion that Saul gives. And I would suggest, I don't, have any scriptural evidence because it doesn't say so, but I would suggest it's very likely that Saul gave this promotion to cover up his attempted murder by saying, this is, this is not my heart towards David. I, I love David. I want, to, I want him to be over more people. You know, this is the demon's fault. That is my best guess of what Saul's doing here, why he gives David a promotion right after he tries to kill him. I don't know for sure, but that's my best guess. And so David, he goes in and out leading the people. Now, before we move on, there is a good question to ask here because why in the world would David stick around in such an abusive situation like this? I mean, talk about an abusive work environment. I've never, I've had some bosses who are pretty rough, but they've never tried to stab me. Why does David stick around in an abusive situation like this? Well, I think probably because David at first did believe that it was the demon's fault. Probably he didn't think it was Saul's fault. David believed the best about Saul. David loved Saul. We're going to see all throughout this that David had a true affection for the king. Now, having said that, 
If you are in a physically abusive relationship, there is only one word I have for you, and it's get out to safety. If you are in a physically abusive situation, you need to get out to safety. Because while it is right to believe the best about someone, when someone crosses the line and physically abuses you, they have proved to you that the line doesn't exist for them. Get out. Get to safety. Don't mess around. Because if they're willing to cross that line, then what other lines are they willing to cross? If David really believed that Saul wanted to kill him, he would have left. You say, how do you know that? I know it because when he realizes later on that it's not the demon, he does leave. David does flee when he realizes this is not the demon. When Jonathan comes to him and tells me, he goes, my father wants to kill you. This is not demonic because David's confused. He's like, he sends Jonathan, he goes, can you find out what's going on here? Because it sounds like he really feels this way about me, but you know, I know he's got this demonic influence in his life. What's going on? And finally, when Jonathan comes to him, he goes, no, my dad wants to kill you. And that's when David, he does leave at that point in time. So that's why I can say that if he really believed Saul wanted to kill him at this point, he'd have already left. Love others. Believe the best about others. But like, be like David. But if the line is crossed, get to safety and don't return until you're absolutely 100% certain it is safe to do so. Now, verse 14, we saw earlier that David grew as a soldier, but now we're going to see him grow as a military leader because he's been put as captain over a thousand, one of the highest ranking positions in the army. Verse 14, and David behaved himself wisely in all his ways and the Lord was with him. So again, the same thought. David doesn't grow bitter at Saul. He didn't think of how to retaliate. He just kept walking with the Lord. He just kept learning to be a better soldier and now a better commander. And so while Saul's spiraling down, David is growing. He is, he is growing in the Lord. He's growing as a person. I realize that we live in a culture that justifies anger and wickedness because of wrongs done or opportunities denied or even perceived slights. But that is not a biblical idea. Your personal growth, my personal growth, as a Christian and as a person has nothing to do with what others are doing around me. My personal growth as a person and as a Christian has absolutely nothing to do with what others are doing around me. Because Jesus didn't ask me to follow them. He asked me to follow him. And is Jesus ever doing anything that would justify your anger or your wickedness? And the answer, of course, is no. While David soars, Saul broods, verse 15. Wherefore, when Saul saw that he behaved himself very wisely, that David just is growing by leaps and bounds, he was afraid of him. He becomes even more afraid. But all Israel and Judah loved David. The king is the only one who has this opinion. And why did they love David? Because he went out and he came in before them. They loved David because David was doing what Saul should have been doing. David should have been leading by example. He should have been the one that is growing forward that people could say, hey, you know, like Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul said, I have not apprehended, I've not laid hold of, I've not grabbed hold of what I was apprehended for. Jesus grabbed hold of your life for a purpose, right? And, and have you arrived yet? Paul says, I haven't. I've not arrived yet. 
And so Paul doesn't say, follow me as I follow Christ because he's the person who's already arrived. He's saying, I'm still growing and I'm moving forward in my growth. So as I'm still growing, follow me as I'm growing. I I don't know about you, but the person that inspires me the most is the person that I'm watching grow closer and closer and closer to Jesus. It's not necessarily the person that's this like statue or on this pedestal. I'm just like, oh, they've arrived. I've not met that person yet. And the person that kind of acts that way or they just kind of stagnant, they don't really seem to be moving forward, not learning any new lessons, they don't tend to inspire me. But the individual who's got these new things that God's teaching them and, and new areas where they're trusting him and growing in him, those are the moments when I'm the most challenged because I go, I want that too. And so David is not because he's trying to capture the hearts of the people, he's doing what Saul should have been doing. Saul was their king. But instead of going out and leading the people, he's brooding in jealousy-based fear. Listen, good leaders don't brood in their personal fortress. They get out in front and they serve. They live in his example. They're, they're willing to take the shot so that others don't have to. And they look for ways to continue their growth. Because isn't that what inspires you to follow someone? Well, Saul, he has no intention of repenting. He's still plotting. And so in verse 17, he finally comes up with an idea that will get rid of David without implicating himself. Verse 17, and Saul said to David, behold, my elder daughter at Merab, her will I give to you to wife. Only be thou valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul said, let not my hand be upon him, but let the hand of the Philistines be upon him. So Saul attempts to murder David by proxy, in a sense, you know, that he will cause David's death similar to how David had Uriah murdered. He's like, well, I'm not going to kill Uriah. He's one of my best friends, but I'll have the, Mal- or the uh, Ammonites kill him, you know. I'll put him on the front lines, and I'll give some orders that everybody else pulls back, and he's exposed, and hey, people die in war all the time. He's going to murder him by proxy. And his plan to lure David into this is by giving him an, a, basically a, a goal that could only be achieved by the, the greatest of, of valiant acts. He says, my daughter's old enough to marry off right now, and, and I want to give her to you. But, but you have to do one thing for me. He says, only be thou valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. The phrase there, valiant for me, is actually four Hebrew words, and it means be my elite fighting soldier. In other words, be my Goliath. Philistines had Goliath, be my Goliath. You know, you, you be the champion of Israel. That's what I want you to be. And so to do that, you've got to make, you made a good name for yourself, David, but you've got to make an even bigger name for yourself. You need to re- get into the thick of things. Take on the fiercest battles, the fiercest spots. You know, prove yourself to be my champion. Fight the Lord's battles. Hadn't David already done those things? Didn't he already take on Goliath? Wasn't he already Israel's champion? What's this only part he still has to do? Well, Saul, in demanding this, he's doing this because the normal demand would be for a dowry. The normal demand would say, hey, you're going to be the son-in-law to the king, which means you're in line to the throne in some way, shape, or form. That's going to be a heavy bride price. But David doesn't have that. Everyone knows this. And so for Saul to say, but I'll, I'll allow you to marry my daughter, my eldest daughter, to have this high position in the royal family, just, just be my champion. All of Saul's court officials and military leaders, the people, they would see this as Saul honoring David for faithful service then. 
But again, Saul has a secret motive. David, he will become overaggressive in battle to jump at this opportunity. He'll get himself killed. But Saul, (laughs) he doesn't anticipate the truth. David doesn't want position or power. It doesn't matter to him. Look at verse 18. And David said unto Saul, who am I? And what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? David, he's like, my family has no history of serving you. I'm a new guy, you know. There are others more deserving who've served you faithfully far longer than I have. There's others who should get this honor, not me. It's almost like David says, I'm happy to be your champion, King Saul, but give your oldest daughter to someone else. And so that's exactly what Saul does. But it came to pass at the time when Merib's, Saul's daughter should have been given to David. So in other words, David goes out and he does it. He becomes the champion. He goes out there, he fights the battles no one else wants to fight. He puts himself in the thick of things. He, he even grows to a greater state. But when the time comes that David has earned that role and his, Saul's oldest daughter should be given in marriage, instead, it says that Saul gave her unto Adriel, the Maholathites, the Maholathite, to be her, his wife. We don't know who this guy is, but apparently he was someone else that was important in Saul's kingdom. Why does Saul do this at this point? I don't know. Some suggest that Saul did this to stir up jealousy in David. In other words, oh, you want to see, you know, let's, let's see how you feel when, when you get slighted. Let's see how, how, how you do great deeds and no one pays attention to it. And let's see how you feel when I call your bluff, Mr. Nice Pants. Maybe that's the case. Perhaps Saul was hoping David would do something rash in his jealousy that the woman he was promised, he doesn't get. Maybe he was hoping that David would do something that he could accuse David of treason for. But it never happens. Because unlike Saul, David was being honest. He didn't want the position he didn't want the power. Now, while Saul's initial plans are foiled, a second opportunity comes from his other daughter, Michael, and this situation is different. Verse 20, and Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. The word there, loved, is the same word used for Jonathan's relationship with David. It doesn't speak of romantic love. In other words, David and Michael have somehow struck up a budding friendship. You know, they're seen talking from time to time, which is rare in that day. Men and women were extremely separate in that culture. They just didn't hang out. They didn't cross-pollinate in, in the way they hung out, you know. They, they were stayed separate. And so if David is having a couple conversations with Michael, it's going to catch people's attention. And so all of a sudden, some of Saul's servants start to notice, hey, Michael, she, I think she likes David. I, I mean, I think these guys, they, they've got a friendship going. I, I think there's something there. And it says that the thing pleased Saul. He thought, oh, I've got a second opportunity here. And so verse 21, Saul said, I will give him to her that she may be a snare to him. She'll be a trap. And that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. In other words, I'm going I'm to give an even greater task for David to marry her. And that'll get him killed. Wherefore, he said, Saul said to David, you shall uh, this day be my son-in-law in the one of the twain. Uh, the phrase in the one of the twain means in the second try. We tried it the first time, but it didn't work out. But the second time, let's try it again. And, and I think this time it'll have a better result. And Saul commanded his servants saying, David apparently didn't bite this time either. 
In fact, it's funny because Saul pitches it almost like it was David's fault the first marriage didn't work out. Oh, we'll do a second try. We'll try you. We'll give you a, give you a, a second interview, you know. But David still doesn't take the bait, likely for the same reason. He doesn't want the position. But this time Saul has a backup plan to convince David to accept the proposal. Verse 22, and Saul commanded his servant saying, commune with David secretly, which means privately. You know, in other words, go talk to David and say, hey, 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 we overheard the king talking about some stuff. We got something to share with you. Kind of like that. He instructs them to, to play it off like this. Commune with David privately and say, behold, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now, therefore, be the king's son-in-law. I mean, step up to the plate. Do this, David. I mean, it's a no-brainer. You're practically family already. But David, in verse 23, the servant spoke these words in the ears of David, and David said, does it seem to you a light thing to be the king's son-in-law, seeing that I am a poor man and lightly esteemed? Now, that's a different answer than David gave last time. This time, you get the idea that David, he actually would like to marry Michael, that he's actually up for the idea. But he goes, do you think it's a light thing to be the king's son-in-law? The word there means light means something of little or no value. And then he explains what he means by the little or no value. He goes, I'm a poor man and lightly esteemed. In other words, I don't have, I don't have the money for this. I can't buy her bride price, you know? David doesn't want to reject the king's offer, but he didn't see any way he could afford the dowry of a king's daughter. And so the servants of Saul told him, saying, on this manner spoke David. Now, knowing that Michael really liked David and getting the thought that David really likes Michael too, this is exactly what Saul was hoping David would say. Verse 25. And Saul said, thus shall you say to David, the king does not desire any dowry. He just wants a hundred foreskins of the Philistines because, you know, people part with that easily. (laughs) To be avenged of the king's enemies. But here it tells us the real motive. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. Bride price, a dowry, was like alimony in advance. (laughs) It was like, hey, if things don't work out, you know, then I've got the money already. And so David didn't have the ability to do that. And Saul says, well, I don't need a bride price. I'm the king. I can take care of my daughter if things don't work out. And I can just kill you anyway, and that'll make me happy. But he says, so here's what I'll do. I want you to go fight. The, give me, bring, you know, bring me back proof of 100 dead Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, verse 26, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. And then the end of verse 26 says, and the days were not expired. In other words, basically in his discussions with the servants, he said, well, David doesn't need to give me a dowry. Let's say he brings, you know, a proof of 100 dead Philistines by the end of summer, you know? That's good enough for me. And that's kind of what they let slip to David. And David's going, well, summer's like like two months out. I I can do this. I can do this. And so David goes out and, and, and he goes to do this. Now, this is all out sneaky, wicked manipulation. And manipulation is never an acceptable form of communication, whether it's in friendship, in work, in church, in marriage. It's never an acceptable form of communication. Say what you mean and mean what you say. And if you have a problem with what someone did, take it to the Lord, forgive them, and if still necessary, talk to them about it. Now, despite Saul's masterful plan, I've got to wrap this up, David shows himself to be even more honorable than Saul. 
Wherefore David, verse 27, arose and went, he and his men, and he slew the Philistines. Does it say a hundred men? Two hundred men. And David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full tale to the king, that he might be the king's son-in-law. And so Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, to wife. You know what's interesting about David here? Saul was trying to use his daughter as bait. And it shows that David valued Michael twice as much as her own father did. Instead of getting rid of David, Saul's plan backfires so badly because now David, he's brought him one step closer to the kingdom. Because if Saul and his sons die, who's next? David's next in line to the throne. And so what we see is that while Saul plots, God just does his plan. He's doing his thing. And his, his plan is moving along just fine. Verse 28, Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and then he also saw that he wouldn't be able to use Michael as leverage because Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. He wouldn't be able to use her to choose me over your husband. Nope. He would not be, she would not be used as a tool against David. And you would think at this point in time that this would be the time to wise up and repent, Right? to look in the mirror and realize how awful you've been and how everything you have tried has failed. But instead, Saul doubles down. Verse 29, and Saul was yet the more afraid of David, and Saul became David's enemy continually. The phrase there, was yet the more afraid of David, it literally means he added to the fear. Now, adding is not a passive behavior, right? Like, Like I can... I can, something can slowly whittle away, but to add to something, it's an active behavior, which means that Saul actively was remaining jealous and pouring fuel on the fire of his fears. Jealousy, remaining jealous, requires pouring fuel on the fire. Instead of taking his wicked thoughts captive, Saul fed them. And so, if you're here tonight and you struggle with jealousy or envy or fear, you need to make a decision to live out Philippians 4, 1 through 9. What does Philippians 4, 1 through 9 say? Read it on your own tonight because we're out of time. But I want to start off with this. Give you just some context. There were some ladies in the church of Philippi. They were believers, but they were going at it. They did not like each other, or they had something between them where they were not getting along. They were scrapping. And so Paul writes to them, and he says, listen, Tell these two ladies to quit it. (laughs) And then he gives this beautiful section where he says, be anxious for nothing, but with, you know, prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make all your requests known unto the Lord. And then, you know, the Lord will keep your heart in perfect peace. You know, he'll keep your heart and mind in peace, you know. And then it talks about, you know, what are we to think on then, you know, instead of all these worrisome thoughts, Whatsoever things are true, just, good, pure, all that, think on those things. If you are struggling with jealousy or fear, that, or envy, you need to make a decision to start living in that, those scriptures, Philippians 4, 1 through 9. You need to live out those verses and what they do and do what they say without compromise because that is the only thing that will renew your mind and enable you to be victorious over these sinful thoughts. And you must do this because the alternative is to let jealous thinking consume you. Jealous thinking is never stagnant. 
It will continue to fester and grow and get bigger and bigger and bigger. It's like the, uh, the mare from uh, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. And that was a big mare. Anyway, I should probably quit. <laughs> we'll pick it up in verse 30 next week. and Because uh, it, it verse 30 ties in a little bit more with chapter 19. So let's stand. Lord, we don't want to let fear or jealousy or envy, Lord, just fester in our hearts. We don't want to be like Saul. And Lord, we recognize that Saul's not like some unique person who is just really susceptible to these things. Lord, we are all capable of, of, of failing and falling to the same mindset that, that Saul had. So Lord, you know, here, here is our heart. You know, search it. See if there's anything in there that's jealous or envious or, or fearful that's causing us to, to have struggles in our relationships with others. You know, that, that's causing us to maybe see evil where there isn't evil. That, that's causing us to, to, you know, constantly justify our own behavior when, when you're trying to deal with us. That, that makes us other-centered in the bad way, that we're always seeing the negative in others rather than seeing the areas in us that need to be sanctified. So, Lord, search our hearts. See if there be any wicked way in, in us. And then lead us in your way everlasting. We're so grateful that when you reveal ugly things in our hearts, you do it because you love us. You're not condemning us. You're not, you're not angry at us. You're not frustrated by us. But you reveal these things because you love us and, and you're drawing us to light. You're drawing us to you. And so this evening, Lord, we say, here we are. As we started off this, this evening, our hearts are open to you. Nothing is hidden. Have your way. And Lord, whatever you show us, we commit right now, we're gonna be obedient to you. If there's jealousy, we're gonna repent and begin to renew our minds. If there's fear, we're gonna repent and begin to renew our minds. So that when we interact with others, Lord, we can be genuine and true like David was with Saul. Even when others wrong us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Help us to do it by your spirit, Lord. Amen.